Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but it feels like 2016 has been kind of a weird year. And there's still four more months left, right? I don't know about you, but it feels like every day there's some new story, some terrible thing that's happening somewhere in the world that we obsess about for about 24 hours, and then something else comes along to take its place. It feels like violence is on the rise. It feels like tensions between races and cultures in this country and around the world are higher and worse than they've ever been. It feels like the rancor and divisiveness of our politics is worse than it's ever been. It feels like fear and anger are our native tongues. It feels like this has been a really weird year. And it's in times like this that it's not unusual for our arts and culture to start reflecting that fear and anxiety that so many of us experience. There are countless movies out there, lots of fiction and other works out there that, that, that reveal how anxious people are. One very popular genre that just keeps exploding on the young adult scene in particular is this sort of future post-apocalyptic dystopia stuff, right? Where after the world all falls apart and the robots are in charge or whatever else, uh, we all live in bunkers under, you know, coal mines in Kentucky or stuff like that. You know, it's this weird kind of vision of a world that has completely lost itself, lost any sense and, and become a terrible dark place, the kind of Hunger Games or, or Divergent group. There's a, another one that just came out recently that I was hearing a, an interview with the author this last week. But don't worry, because there's always some sort of cute teenage romance, so, you know, everything's fine. It feels like when things are really weird or really scary, we have these images of a world that just is falling apart. And how we respond to that, how we live in the midst of that, is really interesting and powerful. One way to respond is with simple despair. We've talked about this before. To just curl up in a ball and sleep and pretend it's not happening until everything is over. But that's not a Christian response. That's not the faithful response. One Christian response, and I'm not actually sure it's very helpful, but it does become more common, especially in times like these. You can find little snippets of it uh, in places in the scriptures and in the tradition. It's not a dominant story, and frankly, I don't think it's a very good one, but it's a very common one. And that one is that essentially when bad things happen and they start to sort of pile up on top of each other, it just means that Jesus is coming back, so don't worry, right? In fact, it's almost good news to see bad news because Jesus will come back faster if things get really, really bad. Again, it's not actually a very helpful story, and it's not very much a dominant story in Christianity, but you'll hear it, especially at times like this. Also, at times like this, it's common to start thinking about the future and what that future really looks like. And often that that happens when we think about children. In times like this, I can't tell you how often I hear people talk about how, how hard it is to think about bringing children into a world like this. What does it mean to be raising kids in a world like this? People my parents' age often have told me, boy, I'm so glad we had kids when we did, because apparently things were really awesome in the late 70s. <clears throat> I wasn't there, I don't know. 
My wife was pregnant with our first child uh, in 2008. 2008 was a pretty weird year, too. Uh, The stock market had crashed. The real estate bubble had burst. The economy was in a free fall. We were in another one of those long, terrible election years, although anymore that's pretty much every year. It never stops. It was a time when we were quagmired in two intractable wars in the middle. Oh, never mind. That's still happening. It was a scary time. And I I can resonate with that thought because often while she was pregnant, we would have these conversations about what kind of a world are we bringing them into and are they going to be safe and have we done enough to make the world a kinder, gentler place for them to grow up? They're so fragile, so innocent. What are we doing? Which is why I think the end of the book of Job can be such a powerful gift to us living in times that feel a little bit crazy. I've mentioned over the last several weeks multiple times that that most scholars believe that the end of the book of Job is a later edition along with the beginning of the book of Job. Because of that, I've often just kind of dismissed it as not very relevant to the rest of the story. I'm more interested in the original text than I am about this sort of strange story that gets tacked on to the beginning and the end to sort of tie it up into a nice, pretty bow. But that was until this last week when I started to read it again, and I realized that there's a powerful gem in there. I I realized that because I was listening to a podcast and a scholar was talking about the end of the book and, and raised something up for me that I thought was really powerful that indeed there might be some real promise to this story. Now, it's not, it's not good news that this wraps up the book of Job in a nice, easy package. Really, one of the main points of the book of Job is that you can't do that, that the world is far too complicated, far too chaotic to to easily be reduced to simple answers. It's also not good news that it, gives Job all of his stuff back, as if that was the point of the whole story. He gets twice as much cattle, all that kind of stuff. That's not necessarily the point either, because I feel like that that further complicates the whole notion that blessings and stuff have something to do with each other, right? Good people get more stuff, and bad people get less stuff. I don't think that's very helpful. It's also not particularly helpful that Job gets all his stuff back because he was faithful. Because again, one of the main points of the whole book of Job is that that's not how it works. That that good people often suffer and bad people often prosper. That it, it doesn't work out that way. The logic of the universe is not that good people get good stuff. So it ironically kind of undoes the whole story itself by giving Job all his stuff back. That's, that's not the good news at least not as I heard it. But rather, perhaps the promise of the story is in the fact that Job and his wife, who had left him earlier, have children. Not just one, they have ten. They had ten children before, too. They all died in a tornado. And so in some sense, these are replacements, although you can never replace a child. Although if you could replace them, They got an upgrade. These ten are better than the first ten, so I guess that worked out. They're prettier anyway. But it's not that. But the fact that they had children at all. Because Job knows the crazy world in which they will be raised. 
Job knows in his flesh and through and through his whole story how crazy, how terrifying, how broken and breaking this world can be. How it can also be immensely joyful and beautiful too, but at least in his experience, this world can break you. And yet they have children. And yet they commit themselves to a new generation. Even in the face of a world that comes undone. They love each other enough to take it one more day and to start over. To begin again. In the face of a world unraveling, they begin again. What a powerful sign of hope that is for those of us who live in a world that often feels really scary. It's not, by the way. There was a wonderful article I just read this morning about how things are actually much better now than they were before. It just doesn't feel like it. But even if the world is as scary and dangerous and horrible as it sometimes feels, nevertheless, it is a confession of faith to bring children into it, or to raise those we have, or to love the children of our neighbors, to spend one more day compassionately, caringly, looking out for the future, trusting that there will be one, and that whatever that future is, it's in God's hands. That the future is is open because it belongs to the one who can open all things, who creates all things. And so we dare to begin again, each and every day, knowing full well that things might come undone. But we wake up every morning, trusting that the future is secure in God's abundantly gracious hands, which frees us to live and love today without too much fear about what will happen tomorrow. Today in Rome, Mother Teresa of Calcutta was canonized by Pope Francis. She's a saint now. Of course, we all thought she was one before, but now it's official. Now, I I realize that Lutherans and Catholics have very different ideas about saints and all that kind of stuff, and we can talk about that some other time, but let's be honest. Most of us probably grew up thinking that Mother Teresa was pretty darn great, right? She has her detractors. There are some critiques out there. That's fair, but... You know, when you think of someone who lives the Christian life, she really rises to the top. I was pondering this week as as people were talking about her canonization today, what is it that made her so great? What is it that, that made Mother Teresa a saint, officially or unofficially? And it wasn't her accomplishments. You see... There are still desperately poor people all over the streets of Calcutta. She didn't solve the problem of poverty there or anywhere in the world. We don't really actually know how many people she helped. Most of the help that she offered were to those who were already beyond being saved by any kind of medical intervention. It wasn't what she accomplished that made her so great. It was that every single person she met Every single person she met, whether they were already dead in the streets or very close to death, in that moment, 
They were the most important person in the world. Worthy of all dignity and respect. She poured herself out for them in mercy and kindness, would take them home to bless and bathe their bodies and prepare them for holy burial. Not because it would make a difference whatsoever in the problem of poverty and destitution in the city of Calcutta, but because, by God, it's a child of God. And in this moment, this child has been given to me to care and to love, regardless of what the future does or does not hold for them. That's what Christian hope and life look like. It is in this moment, on this day, in the midst of a world that is so often confusing and terrifying and also endlessly beautiful, in this moment, committing ourselves to live and to love as if the future is open to God's abundant grace. As if this moment might indeed be our last, but we're going to go out loving and being poured out in mercy, not shutting ourselves behind closed doors and living in fear or anger. What a gift that is to live each day that way. It's often said that when Martin Luther was asked, what would you do if you knew that the world was ending tomorrow? His response was, I would plant a tree today. That's Christian hope, brothers and sisters. Whatever the future brings, what I have today is a seed. What I have today is the gift of a moment to share love and laughter with one who may not be here when the sun comes up tomorrow. But to trust that whatever happens, God has got this. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.